2: And on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy, So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
0: Whether you're making a delicious family meal or a post-workout snack, choose the farm fresh taste of Eggland's best eggs. Only Eggland's best hens are fed their proprietary all-vegetarian feed. That's what makes their eggs more nutritious. With 10 times more vitamin E, 25% less saturated fat, and 6 times more vitamin D compared to ordinary eggs. Egglands Best. Better taste, better nutrition, better eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com to learn more. Hello, I'm Kellyanne Taylor from Radio Times, and this is View From My Sofa. The podcast where every week I sit down with the stars of TV to talk about all things telly. What do they watch? Where do they watch? And who do they watch with? Expect fascinating insights into my celebrity guests' TV habits. What shows do they binge? What do they snack on? What do they loathe? And who really controls the remote on their sofa? This week's guest is the novelist and screenwriter, Helen Fielding, most celebrated as the creator of Bridget Jones. 27 years ago, Fielding wrote an anonymous column in The Independent, which followed the daily triumphs and tribulations of a 30-something singleton who smoked too much, drank too much, and obsessed endlessly over unavailable men and her calorie intake. Bridget Jones has become a global sensation, with the column becoming four best-selling books and three hit films. In this episode, Fielding talks to me about growing up in the industrial north, her early days as a TV journalist, how wanting a swimming pool worthy of a Jackie Collins heroine fuelled her ambitions to become a writer, and reveals that she's hard at work on the next Bridget film. Helen Fielding, welcome to View From My Sofa.
1: How are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you. Now we've mastered the technology. I know, it's always a burden. Let's start
0: with, what is the view from your sofa?
1: Well, coming from the north of England, the view from my sofa always has to be the telly, ideally with a fire underneath, and then two chairs, one on either side. It's very north of England. I love that. (laughs) What have you enjoyed watching most recently on telly? Well, there's different things. I think I'm quite, I like watching different news programmes. I think because I trained as a journalist and um, used to work on sort of um, the lighter side, the shallow end of news, shall we say. So I've, I quite like watching all the different ones, BBC News, CNN, you know, news in different countries. And I'm always quite interested in the way that it's presented. Um you know, like in America, for example, they like to frighten everyone with riddles and go, it's wet, it's see-through, and without it, we die, water. Whereas in Britain, it's it's much more sort of understated. And then, you know, in some countries, the presenters are basically an evening dress. Whereas here, it's it's you can go on the BBC without having a blow dry and a full sense of dental implants you know it's a very different it's much more focused on what's inside the head than what's on the head so I enjoy that and then I like I always with my kids in the evenings we always watch telly when we have dinner I know that's a bit bad and we should sit formally at the table but we always have a thing that we're watching that we can watch every night you know till we're tired of it and then switch to something else And it kind of depends on the mood, you know, what what we're in the mood for. I think my favourite TV series of the last few years has been Succession. I absolutely love it. Um, I think it's just so geniusly written. And it's both serious and funny, which is my favourite kind of thing. And I think the music is almost another character in it. So I love that. I
0: wondered when when you say you sit down with your children and watch TV, is there someone who controls the remote or do you kind of all pick different times or is there straight
1: for the remote, gets to choose? I'm not allowed to touch the remote because it's like a monkey with a cell phone and I jab sort of pointlessly at different buttons and then we get either snow or night on the screen and we can't find what we're looking for. It's a bit like trying to set this interview up. So Dash, <laughs> my son, is um, a computer science guy. So he he really controls the remote. And he can make it do almost anything you want, you know. Um, mm, but it also means he gets to choose a bit more. But that's all right. Unless they try and make me watch... Squid Game. I don't like that. I think it's too violent. Oh, yes, I was very squeamish, although I
0: did stick through it to the end because it was that kind of strange relationship between wanting to watch it but also having to turn away every five minutes because of the gore.
1: I don't like that. Not for you. We like watching Shameless because it makes us feel really sort of healthy and normal as a family because none of us have been to prison.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, I want to... Throw it back now to your childhood. And you grew up in Morley in West Yorkshire and you are one of four children. I wonder if you remember what your first TV memory was.
1: Well, I remember it being very exciting when we got it. And my dad, who always liked to make things, made a cabinet to put it in. And um, so we were a bit frightened of it and there wasn't much on it. Um, but then I remember there was a whole series of children's programmes which we were probably a little bit old for in a way, but there was picture book where a very posh lady sort of took a picture book and, and read stories. And then it moved on to Bill and Ben, Bill and Ben, Bill and Ben, Bill and Ben, flower pot men. <laughs> um, that was sort of mad. It was two sort of puppets in flower pots and then a flower in the middle. Um, And then there was the Magic Roundabout, which was very enjoyable, which I think was narrated by Emma Thompson's father, actually. So those were the sort of kids' programmes. And then there was, later on, there was Play School, which I actually ended up directing at the BBC, which was exciting. It was sort of, and zoom in through the round window and lighting change, defocused and mixed to the teddy. So that was a... (laughs) A favourite of mine. And then I think we we sort of moved on to comedy. And Monty Python was really popular when I was a teenager in the family. And funnily enough, when I watch it now, I don't find it as funny. I don't know if comedy translates through the generations as well as some other mediums. Because the thing they're parodying sort of isn't relevant later on. Of course, I love Top of the Pops. And like everyone else spent ages dancing in front of the mirror, pretending to be Pam's people. Um <laughs> and I again I worked on Top of the Pops for a while, which was a big thrill. So yeah, there was a time when all my favorites I ended up working on, and that was that was really great. I watched um Becoming Bridget last two
0: years ago, and it was the oh, documentary that was on BBC Two. Um and I remember seeing in it your dad had made kind of films when you were growing up. And I wonder if you can tell me a little bit, kind of like what life was like as a child and, and was kind of family viewing a thing? Did you kind of all crowd around the sofa and, or, or two chairs facing the TV and, and watch TV together?
1: Yeah, we did, yeah. It was great, especially when something we all liked came on. And he used to make films just of life, like he made a film that I think was in that documentary of me baking when I was sort of two or something. With the egg on the floor. Yeah, it was just completely gormless. <laughs> like I broke an egg and it was like I'd never seen an egg before and I tried to <laughs> pick it up and then didn't learn the lesson and broke another egg and tried to pick it up again and then made some biscuits and pulled them out of the oven just holding one end of the tray so they all fell on the floor. So even <laughs> at that age, I was, I was very confused by the world. And as a child, were you creative and, and did you always want to be a writer? Yes, I, I did always want to be a writer. Well, as soon as I kind of knew what writing and reading was, which wasn't obviously, I can't claim I knew that when I was one. And I was a very <laughs> late reader. I don't think I learned to read till I was about six. But yeah, I always felt as though I knew what I could was doing with words. You know, I could do things with words which I couldn't do with, for example, eggs or biscuits. And so I, I liked writing. And then I started to realise, as I got, I read a lot, a lot of books when I was young, you know, when I was growing up a schoolgirl. Um, and then I discovered sort of less literary books like Jackie Collins, and which I loved because they're great stories, you know. And then i my parents used to have a camper van um we used to all, six of us, go on holiday in it to the continent, as they called it, it, every summer. And they used to save up and then we'd go and stay in Switzerland and Italy and things. And and then I saw swimming pools and I thought, and I knew about Jackie Collins and her glamorous life. And I thought, oh, if I was a writer, I could have a swimming pool. So that <laughs> fueled my ambition, perhaps in the wrong way, a bit <laughs> shallow, shallow, perhaps, but... It was all very connected that it would give me a sort of different life from living in the industrial north and sort of glamour and fun and things like that. So there were two things going on. One was loving writing and the other was a more shallow ambition just to have a a different sort of life, you know.
0: And you did end up leaving the North and you went to Oxford. But before that, you described your teenage years. You were very academic at a young age. And then your teenage years, you've described as slightly distracted from academia. And let's put it by the kind of plights of our youth. What were you like as a teenager? And were there any kind of series that were on at that time or films that had come out that kind of mark that and you identify with?
1: Um, I think I was very deeply marked by The Sound of Music, but that was much earlier. But my mother absolutely loved it. And I actually think it's a very, very good film. Mm -hmm. I was actually going to go to a sing-along of Sound of Music the other night. Um, I just think it was beautifully constructed. And as a love story, it's, it's not dissimilar to Pride and Prejudice and indeed the first Bridget in that you've got this sort of locked up man, you know, who's, ostensibly desirable, as was always the way in those days because he's got a big house. And, in fact, in actual Pride and Prejudice, the moment Elizabeth Bennet really goes for Darcy is when she sees his big house, which is <laughs> not very feminist. But um, the music was very much part of our household growing up because it was on all the time. So I think that that had a big influence on, on me. And I loved... I think this was later, actually after I didn't live at home, but I loved those Croft and Perry BBC sitcoms like Dad's Army and Are You... I still think Are You Being Served is funny with all the sort of sexual innuendos and Mrs. Slocum with her pussy and sort of (laughs) John Inman, you know, and those sort of... They would have kind of six really well-drawn characters who did the same thing every week. And I think that was a really good... They were very good, those two writers. They did a lot of It Ain't Half Hot Mum and a whole series of very, very good watchable sitcoms. And I still sometimes watch Dad's Army just because it it really makes me laugh. So you went on to study English at St Anne's
0: College and you dabbled in drama, befriended Richard Curtis. How did you find your time at Oxford?
1: Well, To start with, I was very intimidated by the whole thing because, you know, coming from the North, it was a very, very different world. And a lot of the people had been to public school and just silly things like, you know, the tutor asked me for drinks before dinner. And I turned up at sort of 11.30 in the morning thinking that because, of course, dinner for us was at lunchtime and dinner was tea for us or supper. And then the first time I got invited to a dinner party I went in a long dress but everyone else was wearing jeans and it was spaghetti you know <laughs> with a, with hirondel wine so to start with I was very unsure of myself and also because I'd had a job over the summer holidays they give me this great long reading list and I thought they can't mean I can't read all these books um but then when I got there I was supposed to have read the whole of Dickens so I had to try and read Bleak House in one night which wasn't a great success. (laughs) So I got the hang of it after a while. Um, And then in the second year, I met Richard and Rowan Atkinson and a whole load of people who were really funny and fun. I sort of moved out of the college pretty quickly into a shared house that reminded me of home because it's kind of next door to a mill and a pub. And so I sort of was in denial about the whole Oxford thing and spent a lot of time playing pool. Quite quite good at pool, but then once I got going, then and found it's like anything when you find some people that you get on with who are really funny, then I had a really nice time. Then
0: you dabbled in drama, and I wonder kind of how did you then when you finished uni decide which kind of direction to go career wise?
1: Well, I think my career as an, act- as an actress has been repeatedly blighted, and there's still time. <laughs> me to burst forth I think. I believe in you. Thank you if anyone's listening (laughs) who wants to cast me (laughs) but um, no I was in the Edinburgh Festival and all my parts were taken away except Misguided, the Mute Chambermaid so that was a low point but then when I left Oxford I was offered a job on the Doncaster Evening Post um, again back up in Yorkshire and I really should have taken that job because I would have started writing earlier and then I could have moved. Down to London, but I was tempted by the glamour of the BBC. They offered me a news job in Bristol. So I took that and it it was really fun. And a lot of the stuff in the Bridget movies came from that time of doing funny local stories in Bristol and ending up with sort of six sheep in the studio. And then London would say, Sorry, Bristol, we're dropping you. But in a way, I wasn't that suited to TV because. I'm not that practical. And so I'd always be late with my stories. You know, there were always live shows that I was on. And I think in that documentary, there was a clip of me doing some sort of report, live report, and doing it all wrong and then just looking completely traumatised. So it was exciting, but it was also really stressful. And, you know, I never knew when I was running the studio floor if they said, hold it there. I didn't know whether they meant stop everything or for the camera to just steady. And so there was, it was a messy, messy time. But then also it was good that you could think up fun ideas. Like I worked on Jim will fix it. And, you know, you could go through all the letters and find really fun things to film. Like there was a little boy who wanted a chandelier in his um, bedroom. So we put this giant chandelier in his little bedroom and then, he came home and went, Mum, what's this? And she said, you said you wanted a chandelier. And he said, really didn't mean it, did I? So, <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot of things like that that were, made me laugh a lot.
0: Did you ever watch yourself back on screen? And if so, how did that feel? Oh, it was
1: cringeworthy. I looked <laughs> terrified, sort of pressed up against the wall and talking in a very high voice. And I put a lot of effort into writing my scripts, but they, they came out a bit. You know, I'd say things like, you wouldn't think of butterflies as a home accessory, but here they are at the home exhibition of accessories, (laughs)
0: you know, stuff like that. (laughs) So you moved from TV and you went into print journalism. And I've heard you talk about before this kind of yearning to be, quote unquote, a serious journalist. How then did you wind up writing an anonymous column for The Independent following a 30-something singleton, which was, so to speak the birth of Bridget Jones?
1: Well, I'd already been playing with the character, actually, for a long time, and I'd written a pilot for the BBC called 30s Panic, uh, which was about this same character. And her basic joke was, I'm not going to sleep with him. Cut to, she is in bed with him. So it's a sort of the gap between ambition and reality, I suppose, with the character. And I'd spent quite a lot of time working in Africa, working in Africa when I left the BBC, I worked as a journalist in Sudan and Ethiopia. I I did the documentaries for the first couple of years for Comic Relief with Billy Connolly and Lenny Henry. We went out to Mozambique and Ethiopia and Sudan. I carried on doing that for a bit and I actually wrote a novel called Course Celeb, which was about um, celebrities and famine and the way they sort of in to react and the main character in that was a bit of an early bridget um and then i was in on the independent and i was pretty broke actually because it was i was doing book reviews and trying to do these serious things about postmodernism and then one of the editors there a guy called charlie lebetter said why don't you take this character from course 11 make her into a column and people were, At that time, there were millions of columns and they wanted single girls writing about their romantic life. And I said, well, I'm not going to do it as myself, but I'll make someone up. And I thought it would be very short-lived and I didn't tell anyone I was doing it. And then the irony was that, of course, the one thing I thought wouldn't work did work. So then, of course, as soon as it got popular, I started boasting about it. And it, it slowly snowballed into... Replacing the earnest second book I was writing about cultural divides in the Caribbean, and the publisher said, "Well, let's have Bridget instead, and I was like, "Well, fine, I've done all these columns um I didn't expect much of it. I don't think anyone did really, so it's all a surprise when
0: you were writing the columns, what kind of popular culture were you consuming, and how generally were women being presented? I
1: think What happened really was I wasn't the only person who was writing that sort of thing at the time. I was just early with it because it was in a newspaper, so it was instant. And in fact, there were a lot of books in a similar vein that came out in the next few years. I don't think they were copying me. I think it was just that the image of the single woman in her 30s had not caught up with the reality of it, which was there were lots of reasons why women would be single, they because they could now we weren't living in Jane Austen's day or even 50 years before, and you could function perfectly well and get a job and have a flat and you know have lots of friends and live in a city. And you, and so I think the older generation thought there'd been some hideous mistake if you were 35 and not married, and that's where the whole mum and you know tick tock tick tock thing came from. Whereas now, I think one thing that is good is that that has changed and there is an identity for single women in their 30s that isn't Miss Havisham or there's no mention of cobwebs and shelves and spinning wheels anymore and that that's right that's what should have happened it's good.
2: Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
0: Why do you think it is that Bridget is so relatable? You know, I asked you what your first kind of childhood or teenage memories are, and mine is solely Bridget and that's all me and my friends used to talk about and then you know we became old enough to go to the pub and go and get drunk and so you do and then it became that identity of yes you're all chasing love and you're also going and getting absolutely trollied in a pub with too much white wine and I think you said it before Bridget is how we feel, or why it's so relatable is how we feel we are expected to be, and how we actually are. And I guess as well, not only why is Bridget relatable, or why
1: was she relatable at the time? Why did why is she still so relatable now? Well, I don't, I don't know because it wasn't intentional. It was a very, uh, I, I didn't plan this out. It was a very instinctive thing that I wanted to write, but. Um, And I think because it was anonymous, it freed me up to be much more honest about what was really going on. But I think this gap has only got bigger with social media. And I think it goes through everything. It's not just being a girl in your 30s. Like the last book in the series, which we hope will be made into a film, is about Bridget being a parent. And of course, then there's massive gaps between how you think you were supposed to be as a parent and how you actually are. And you sort of read these books like one, two, three, 2, Karma, Happier Parenting, and you're going, come to the table, come to the table. One, two, and then you're like, well, what am I going to do when they get to three if they don't come? <laughs> don't you know who I am? You know, it's that sort of <laughs> dynamic. And I think there's all this pressure that you're supposed to be this, that or the other running all the way through life. And there's something really lovely about the way I I find women relate to each other as friends, that you don't show off to each other, really. You tell each other about all the things that have gone wrong and that you feel that you've messed up. And then you reassure each other that that is human. And that's that's what people do, we're just people. Um, and I think it's a relief from... I I stopped doing social media when the pandemic hit. I just thought, I can't handle that layer on top of everything else. And I'm honestly much happier without it. I get a lot of it, you know, second hand from my friends and kids, but I don't really want to give a run running commentary on what I'm doing all the time because I'd have to airbrush it, you know, and sort of present myself in a way that I'm not that's not really me or that I'm doing things that I'm not really doing because you You don't want people to necessarily peep behind the curtains if it's actually you. And that's that thing as well with the kind of evolution of social media
0: and Bridget spends her days kind of obsessing over how many units of alcohol she consumed, calories she consumed, cigarettes she's consumed. And there is kind of this preoccupation with aesthetics, which we've seen even more or even more obviously through social media. And I think that's the thing. Bridget does kind of pick up on bigger themes and and things that people feel, you know, be it weight, how you look, how good you are at public speaking, loneliness, and does it all with this kind of humour. And I think that's why she still speaks to so many people, because those issues are still there. They might be dressed up differently or they might appear in different ways, but still kind of undercuts most women's lives.
1: Yes, I think very much so. And I think that it is liberating to to be able to acknowledge those things and to be a human being. And I think what was what was very interesting to me um about the Queen and, you know, all the events in the last few weeks, I spent ages with the BBC on just watching the people filing past as she lay in state and It wasn't just because she was the queen. It was because of who she was and her qualities. And I think there's something wonderful about the fact that this woman was beloved by billions of people, really, because of her qualities, not because of what she looked like. I mean, her lovely smile, yes, but it was because she was so good and funny and hardworking and, kind and cared about people and cared about the country and I think it was a huge thing that I hope we all sort of noticed that this is what people valued so much this is why they queued Mm. up for 14 hours because it was that it was the heart of that person that they Mm. really respected and and stood for a lot of things in in this country and yeah I wouldn't want to <laughs> something faintly ludicrous about me comparing Bridget Jones to the Queen and <laughs> <laughs> there's a very big gap there but again it's people in Britain responding to the reality of a human being rather than what they look like on the outside that that was wonderful to me to watch that.
0: Let's turn on to the
1: making of the film
0: Mm -hmm. and um, you co-wrote all of the films Mm -hmm. and I wondered what's that like is it an easier process writing for screen than it is novel harder more difficult
1: novels are much easier because you're you're totally in control of what happens and you can do whatever you like it doesn't matter how much it costs or what the practicalities of it are and writing Bridget. Is actually quite complicated because there's a lot of layers going on. So the jokes always come out of something quite serious. There's always a sort of it's not just that she's fallen over or something. A classic example would be a kitchen scene where Mark Darcy had a very sleek kitchen. And so he couldn't find out what find where anything was because all the cupboards looked the same. And then he just opened one and all this mess fell out. And I, I think in one at one stage that got translated into Bridget not knowing which proper door to open, which is a completely different joke. It's just her being stupid. So I think I always have to protect the integrity of, of who she is because she's actually not stupid at all. She's just a bit distracted. <laughs> so I think making the films, in some ways, it's more fun because there's other people around and you know, fun things to do and people to talk to and places to go. But it's very easy to look at it and think, oh, why don't we move that there and change this? But it's also interwoven that it gets very difficult if you start unpicking it. So books are much easier because I can just, I've got it all in my head. And if I'm moving something, I know what else it's attached to. And, you know, it's like, it's like a, a piece of material that you've woven, you know, and you've got to pull a string out and sew it back in somewhere else. It's quite complicated.
0: When Bridget Jones came out in hardback, it it did, it was critically acclaimed, but it wasn't necessarily kind of doing the rounds. And I wondered if there was a moment after the paperback came out where it kind of made the Sunday Times bestseller list, what it was like
1: kind of seeing people around London reading your book. The stupid thing is I never actually saw anyone read it on the tube. And I heard that people were reading it on the tube a lot, but I just never saw them. But what was exciting was when it went to, got on the Sunday Times list in the paperback, and then it went six, five, four, three, two, one. And I kept it, I cut them all out and kept them under the lid of a box so I could take them out and look at them when no one was there and then shut the lid when people came round, lest they thought I was sort of... Snug in some way <laughs> but it was amazing I mean you know as a journalist what are the chances and everyone that writes a book really hopes that other people read it and remember it so it was a huge thing to happen I was quite self-conscious about suddenly having a public persona and the classic example of what being well known does to you was when I came home to my flat and there was a photographer on a bike outside and i was like oh for heaven's sake why can't they leave me alone it's intolerable and then i realized it was domino's pizza and i was really disappointed (laughs) and that's that's the sort of classic thing of what richard curtis once said being famous is like catching a disease unfortunately for me no one ever recognizes my face or really my name you know they um it's just bridget they know so i it's good i can just sort of move through the world and watch things and and I don't get spotted usually so that's good
0: when the films came out and you kind of eventually moved to LA and you were kind of
1: swept up in in that wonderful lifestyle and you I think got your swimming pool well swept up in that wonderful lifestyle isn't quite accurate because what happened was I was on a book tour and I thought oh for the price of a flat in London I could buy a house with a swimming pool here so I did but That was the situation then. But it was like, it was typical Hollywood, or as we'd say in Yorkshire, all fur coat and no knickers, because it was like a film (laughs) set. And the minute it rained, the roof fell in and sort of everything broke in the house. It was a classic example of Hollywood. So I spent the first year tramping on the roof with roofing men trying to to mend it. But no, I mean, it was wonderful. The miracle of the swimming pool. You know, if you come from... Yorkshire, and then you step out. And there's a swimming pool. It was fantastic, and I spent an enormous amount of time in the swimming pool, just marveling at the the wonder of it all. And I think I've always lived. I've never lived all the time there. You know, I'm lucky enough to be able to have both places, and I don't think I could do Los Angeles without Britain because it's a it's a very different place. a very different history and. The longer you spend in the two countries, the longer you realise how different people are in different countries. And the thing that is very, very strong in Britain is is it's important to people to be funny. And it's important to people to be a community. You know, there's a lot of closeness. It's a small, London even is a smaller city and you can easily get about. And people tumble in and out of each other's houses and pubs and... There's that sort of closeness, whereas what's wonderful about LA is the light and the landscape and the mountains and the sea and all the out of doorsy thing is is really really wonderful. And as a city, as everyone knows, it's very spread out, so that close community is is more difficult to find. You have to get your little group of people. Your tribe, if you like. I wanted to talk about the kind of shift in stories that we've seen, and I I
0: guess especially on British TV. Um, There's been, or it feels like there's been a space that's opened up for women to really tell their stories. And, you know, you've seen it from Phoebe Waller-Bridge's Fleabag to Michaela Cole's I May Destroy You to Dolly Alderton's Everything I Know About Love. Mm -hmm. And some would kind of attribute that emergence of the 30-something messy women to kind of starting in mainstream culture with Bridget. And I wonder, why do we yearn to see this kind of quote-unquote flawed women? And do you think that that has changed the landscape for kind of women to tell their own stories? And do you think we've seen
1: more of that in recent times? I definitely think we have. I'm a huge fan of of Fleabag and, and of course, Dolly Alderton too, the different things. But I think that, I don't think we are seeing flawed women. I think we're seeing real women, um, mm. obviously heightened. Like if you're writing comedy, like um, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, I was going to call her Phoebe, but I don't know that well, but I wish I did. <laughs> but Phoebe Waller-Bridge, um, she's a very, very funny writer. and And she does what we all do, which is she pushes things further and further and further. Um, to be more, more and more outrageous, which make, makes it funny. But at the heart of it is something real. And I think if you look at books in the past, not Jane Austen, because she was cleverer than that, but if you look at Ernest Hemingway, for example, and the women in his books, they tend to exist. That's a bit of a cliche, but they tend to exist to be something for a man, you know, to be... Um, helpful or beautiful or something like that. I mean, there's always been, you know, the liver birds and comedies about single women that are very funny and and quite honest. But I I think it's got more sophisticated with Girls, um, with Amy Schumer, with Phoebe Waller-Bridge, with um, Killing Eve is a classic example where absolutely saying no to women have to be nice, women have to be nice to children, like that brilliant opening scene where Jodie Comer takes the child's ice cream. <laughs> it's just like, we're not doing that, that sort of stereotype of women being nice to children and animals. I, I thought that series was absolutely brilliant, loved it, and so interesting and so pushing boundaries and so funny.
0: On the flip side we've kind of seen this rise in female stories, or, or maybe not even rise, just m- maybe more of a platform for them. But on the flip side, there has been this kind of counterargument of people being slightly snobby or rejecting the term chick lit, for example, in inverted commas. Do you feel ever that your work has been shunned because it is predominantly by a woman for other women?
1: Well, so. <laughs> Certainly, there was a, when it first came out, there was a lot of, um, I don't know what you're it really, but the, some people were absolutely furious. Julie Burchill, who's the journalist at the time, said she was going to come and slap me. Um, and a lot of solemn feminists got very, very cross about it. But my thing is that if you can't laugh at yourself as a woman, you haven't got very far at being equal. Because nobody would say that to P.G. Woodhouse or indeed any Co- male comedian laughing at themselves yeah so it's completely ridiculous to say mm. that you know by laughing at our selves and our the daft things that we do and our frailties that we're somehow not being feminist we're, we're just being people and um I, I haven't got much truck with that sort of thing mm. and it's it's humour. It's being funny, and we can't exclude half the human race from that. Mm, um, that is course. being a that's being oppressive and forcing stereotypes on women, which is exactly what we don't want to happen. And I don't think yeah. people that write comedy are deliberately saying, "Oh, I'm going to make a statement about women." They're just expressing themselves and telling stories, real comedy based in something real that then becomes funny because you push the joke and exaggerate. Um, so, I mean, there people always complain about everything, especially on, that's why I don't look at Twitter because it just confuses everything. You <laughs> just like, yes, you can't complain after please everyone. You just express things.
0: Yeah. Um, And I want to ask, lots of people lay claim to being the inspiration for Mark or Daniel. Was there actually a specific person that inspired each character?
1: Well, Mark Darcy was inspired by Mr. Darcy, who was also Colin Firth, and in my mind, were all the same person, and in a way still are. So they were inseparable, and that was the one thing I insisted on in the movie, that Colin Firth should be played by Colin Firth. And Mr. Darcy and Mark Darcy should all be the same person. And it was unbelievably (laughs) thrilling. The first time I went on set and saw Colin slash Mark slash Mr. Darcy saying the lines I'd written, it was very exciting. I think the trick with putting anyone you know in a book is to make them really physically attractive. And then they don't mind at all. Whatever (laughs) you put, they just think it's them. So lots of people think they're Daniel Cleaver. And I say, yes, they are to all of them. (laughs) <laughs> and all my, all my gay friends think they're Tom, but only the nice bits of Tom. Um, and that's fine too. And um, I think that I try not to steal people's stories without asking them first. And people often tell me things, funny things that happen that, that I use. You know, people are very generous with their stories, sometimes whole plot lines. You know, Bridget Jones' baby, somebody told me about she had slept with two men and didn't know who the father was. And, you know, it, it's um, it's a nice thing when you've got a sort of group of friends and they, they tell you funny things. And they don't mind if you use them.
0: Will we see Bridget return to our screens? Are you going to adapt
1: Mad About the Boy? I Yeah, I'm working on it. And I really hope. It'll happen. I mean, every film that gets made is a miracle. I think it's really difficult to make films mm. and to make them happen and to make them good. And we want it to be really good, but I really hope so. I'd love to see it see it on the screen.
0: Now we're gonna move on to our quick fire questions. So I ask you a question and you say your first response. If you were a rom com, which would you be? Bridget Jones' diary. <laughs>
1: No, now I'd I'd be mad about the boy, the one with the children. Streaming or terrestrial TV? Oh, TV. Um, My mind immediately went to aliens when you said that. Um, (laughs) Oh, news, terrestrial and everything else streaming. Except I just want to say something about streaming. I think I'm not the only person that sometimes just doesn't watch television at night because I know it'll ask me for a password and I'll go round and round in circles trying to remember which small furry animal with which number the password was. (laughs) And I do think they should somehow make all the streaming services come together under one thing and one password. But then maybe that would be just going back to where we were in the first place when you just turned (laughs) on the TV. (laughs) But I think I've heard loads of people say that, that they just, at the end of the day, they can't put the streaming on because they'll get locked in password hell. What's your guilty pleasure to watch on TV? Well, I've got lots of those. I, I will watch um, Fleabag and Succession on repeat. I like French things, actually. I like Lupin and. I love that. For my agent. I love Lupin. And. Um, I like to watch, if I'm going on holiday, I like to watch The Hangover. It always puts me in a jolly (laughs) mood. (laughs) It's a really feel-good film. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And so I don't know guilty pleasure, really, I suppose. Just a pleasure. Yeah, just a pleasure. I like, um, I watch Vicky Cristina Barcelona a lot because it makes me laugh so much when Penelope, Penelope Cruz has that sort of mad fit with... Javier Bardem and Scarlett Johansson and Javier Bardem keeps saying, speak English like she's a child. <laughs> I love that film. Um, I sometimes watch um, Pride and Prejudice again with Mr. Darcy, isn't that sad? Oh. And I, li- I like watching David Attenborough things, you know, nature things. Me too. My really guilty pleasure is watching President Zelensky on the Ukrainian Dancing with the Stars. Oh, my God. He's so gorgeous. I just he's he's like a huge hero for me. So I think that is a guilty pleasure. Watching him on anything. We found Helen Fielding's crush. Yep.
0: Yes, got it. Um a snack of choice and drink of choice while watching TV.
1: Mm, probably chocolate. I think chocolate and a glass of wine. Mm. Lovely.
0: Okay, Helen, now we're going to play our quiz. I am going to play you three theme tunes, and you have to get some. This is number one. Okay, standing by.
1: Any ideas? It's succession. I think the music in succession. Completely brilliant and i think it's almost a character in itself correct helen number two pride and prejudice i love it i love it i wonder why you got that one
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay and the third one
2: dad's army
0: i love you
1: got that in about two seconds i love that signature tune it's so funny and sweet
0: well helen that is all we have time for today thank you so much for joining View from my sofa it's been an absolute pleasure
1: it's been great fun thank you so much
0: Now before we bring this week's episode to a close I wanted to thank all of our listeners for their comments and feedback about the new series please do write in and let me know what you've been watching what your favourite childhood TV memory is and who you'd like to see on our sofa you can reach us at podcast at radiotimes.com remember new episodes are out every Tuesday and next week we're joined by one of my absolute favourite actors Daniel Radcliffe make sure to download and subscribe so you never miss an episode.